Thank you, Bert. Thank you, Sally. Excellent job, as always. Could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah, verse 1? Obadiah, verse 1. And uh, before we'll uh, pray for the offering and pray for the second lesson, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to express our love and gratitude to you for all the blessings that you've given to us, these unmerited blessings related to our salvation and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for treating us better than we deserve. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. And we just pray, Father, that you would accept this love offering uh, that we're about to uh, give to you, and we just uh, pray that you would, uh, we would honor you by our mental attitude, that we're, uh, we're doing this with proper motivation and love and appreciation for you, Father, and for the great blessings that you've given to us. We know that all that we have, uh, whatever prosperity we have, spiritually, maturity, uh, materially, uh, is uh, from you, Father. So, Father, we pray for this um, offering in Jesus' name. And Father, also pray for this lesson, the second session, that you would work mightily and powerfully through me today to communicate this verse, Obadiah verse 14, with the eighth and ninth indictments against Edom, uh, which is uh, this passage is teaching us how you uh, deal with the nations. And I just pray, Father, that you would uh, use me mightily, help me be sensitive to Spirit's guidance and direction in giving you full counsel to your people. I pray for your people that you would help them to learn, understand, and apply, and concentrate and enjoy what they're being taught through the power of the Spirit. And we just pray, Father, you guide them in the application so that we can continue to grow, go, in our, go forward under your plan and become more like your Son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You should be at Obadiah, verse 1. We're going to be looking at verse 14, which communicates the final two indictments against the nation of Edom, which serve as the basis for God's judgment, judgment of the nation of Edom in the 6th century B.C. And uh, as we did in the first session, let's read all the way through the whole book, only all 21 verses, and then we'll look at verse 14 in detail. That way, we're looking at the context of verse 14, the immediate preceding one and the one to follow. Obadiah, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not only steal as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, <clears throat> those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near. For all nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually, and they will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. 
People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, and the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. If I may, let me give you my translation of verse 14. Indeed, you should have never stood at the fork in the road in order to slaughter his refugees. Furthermore, you should never have caused the survivors to be handed over as prisoners of war during the period of their distress. So what it says in your translations, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. This is another emphatic declaration of guilt which not only uh, is in addition to the previous declarations of guilt, which we noted in detail in verses 10 through 13, but they also, this one actually advances upon the previous emphatic declarations of guilt. So this indictment here in verse 14 accuses the Edomites of standing at the crossroads in order to kill Judean refugees fleeing the Babylonian hordes in the sense that they occupied this geographical location to do this. So this is an emphatic declaration of guilt expressing the idea that the Edomites should have never stood at the crossroads in order to kill Judean refugees fleeing from the Babylonian army during Nebuchadnezzar's final invasion of the kingdom of Judah. And then in verse 14 it says, you should have never handed over their survivors in the day of their trouble. That's another emphatic declaration in the Hebrew, which is in addition to the previous ones. And this indictment, as you can see, accuses the Edomites of causing the, those Jews who survived the Babylonians attack on their country to be handed over to the Babylonians as prisoners of war. So this emphatic declaration of guilt expresses the idea that the Edomites should have never handed over to the custody of the Babylonians those Jews who escaped the Babylonians' attack on their country. And when it says in the day of their, their trouble in verse 14, that refers again to the period of time in which the Babylonian armies attacked the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Obadiah 14 contains two more emphatic declarations of guilt, as I said before, as related to the kingdom of Edom's cruel treatment of the kingdom of Judah, which are in addition to the ones listed in verses 10 through 13. So therefore, verse 14 concludes the listing of indictments presented by the God of Israel through the prophet Obadiah against the kingdom of Edom. So it's kind of like a courtroom trial. Uh, when you get somebody gets uh, arrested, they, and then they, uh, the, the prosecutor, the district attorney, brings in the, they bring, list off the indictments against the accused. This is what's going on here. Okay, now here's the thing. In the courtroom of heaven, you have elect and non-elect angels that have access to the throne room of God. We know this from Job, uh, the book of Job, the first two chapters. We know this from Zechariah. And so, and we know this from other passages, like in Kings. And so there's a courtroom upstairs, a courtroom drama going on. A lot of things are going on. And what was happening in the nations, there's a, the, the, the angels, the, the elect angels, like when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah, they were observing the behavior of uh, the, the Sodomites and, the, and, the, and those of Gomorrah. And so they reported this to God. Now listen to me. God didn't need them to report. He knew this was going on. He's omniscient. So why, what was the purpose of having the angels? Well, the angels served as witnesses to his, uh, his, uh, the fact that he was going to judge the Sodom and Gomorrah. He had the witnesses and the angels, uh, the, the elect angels, as to the guilt of the Sodomites. And then he, the judgment came down. So every nation has, uh, remember, every nation on earth is under the control of Satan and the fallen angels. First uh, John 5.19 says that. Satan's the god of this world. So fallen angels, uh, they are witnesses to what's going on on the earth as well. So when God brings this judgment down on Edom, there's plenty of witnesses to the, the guilt of the Edomites as to what they did, that they violated uh, the establishment principles. They violated uh, the Ten Commandments, in other words. They violated God's law. And the angels know that, even the non-elect angels know this was going on. So this declaration of guilt, uh, all these indictments serve as the, as the basis for the judgment that God had declared in verses 2 through 9. So again, this is very important. God always has reasons for his judgment, and he uses witnesses. He's not uh, just like a tyrant out there that just, uh, like a, a ruler that just executes somebody in a drop of a hat like Saddam Hussein, all right, without any, any, any court or any trial. You know, a kangaroo court thing. No, God doesn't do that. 
okay? And so when anybody gets judged by God, there's evidence and there's witnesses, and in fact, God, as he said before, uh, well, a lot of times is waiting for people to repent. And that's why you wonder why certain people live so long and they're so wicked. Well, that's because God's trying to wait to see this, exhaust every opportunity for them to repent. So Obadiah, again, concludes the listing of indictments presented by the God of Israel through the prophet Obadiah against the kingdom of Edom. Now the first, as we just read, asserts that the Edomites should have never stood at the fork in the road in order to slaughter Judean refugees who were fleeing their cities and towns from the Babylonian army. The second, as we read, asserts that the Edomites should have never caused the Judean survivors to be handed over to their enemies as prisoners of war during their period of distress as a people. So all of these indictments in verses 10 through 14 were the result of the sinful behavior of the Edomites. They have only themselves to blame for their judgment from God. So Nebuchadnezzar's armies, as we pointed out, attacked Judah three times, 605, 597, and 586 BC. And during each of these invasions, a portion of the population of Judah was deported to Babylon. And during the last invasion, the city of Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. Second Chronicles chapter 36, as I mentioned in the first session, uh, records the destruction of Judah and the city of Jerusalem and its temple by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And Obadiah 10 through 14 is describing the action of the people of Edom during this final invasion. So verses 10 through 14 is describing Edom's conduct during Nebuchadnezzar's final invasion of Judah and her capital city, Jerusalem, in 586 B.C., and that's indicated by the scriptures. If you look on the board with me, in 586 B.C., the wealth of Jerusalem was plundered, and great, a great portion of the population was deported to Babylon. That's 2 Kings 24, 13 through 16, and 2 Chronicles 36, 18 and 20. Furthermore, this city was very nearly burned to the ground, uh, including the temple, 2 Kings 25, verses 9 and 10, and 2 Chronicles 36, 19. And many of her citizens were slaughtered, 2 Kings 25, 8 through 21, 2 Chronicles 36, 17. We also get jo Jeremiah chapters 6 through 9 and Ezekiel chapters 4 through 7. Also, interestingly enough, there's mentioned in 2 Kings 24, 4 through 5, the account of King Zedekiah's unsuccessful attempt, attempted escape with a band of small soldiers. He was, ex he was caught, he was, uh, he saw his sons executed before his eyes, and then they took out his eyes. And then he was sent off into, into, in, uh, into Babylon. The last thing he saw was the execution of his sons. This is the kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar was. That's the way they, they did things in the ancient world back in the Mesopotamian regions of the world. Now, it's interesting, Edom, they joined a coalition of nations to fight with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and they were also accused of taking its revenge out on Judah. Ezekiel 25, verse 12 teaches us that. And the Edomites were condemned by Ezekiel, as we read, for delivering over the people of Judah to Babylon as prisoners of war. We read that in the first session in Ezekiel 35, verses 5 and 6. Now, they were also, they were also guilty of rejoicing over Judah's defeat and Jerusalem's destruction. They were gloating. We saw that in the first session in Psalm 137, verse 7. And also Ezekiel, we read in the first session, Ezekiel chapter 35, 11 through 15, and Ezekiel 36, 2 through 6, all of which talk about the Edomites rejoicing over the misery of the Judean people during that final invasion. And the prophetic declarations, people, of judgment against Edom reached their climax during this invasion. And Jeremiah 9, 26, 25, 21, Lamentations 4, 21, and 22, Ezekiel 25, 13 for documentation. And lastly, we see that Jeremiah 49, 7 through 22, and Ezekiel 35 and 36, which we read in the first session, are echoed by Obadiah 10 through 14. So the reason why you see these, this, this echoed in scripture is because this is serious. God's very angry here. And it's all over the Old Testament what Edom did during this period of time. So if you could, hold your place. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah 49, verse 7. Jeremiah 49, 7. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7. That's a good cup of coffee. Who made the coffee there? Oh, 
Rapid Ray Perkins right here. He makes a good cup of coffee. Man, I'll tell you what, come over to my house and make me my coffee because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a teetotaler, but I, this, I like those coffee. Man, that's good stuff. I drink it black like a real man. No, no sugar, no honey, and nothing in it. You know, just putting all that cream and stuff. That's killing you, you know, all that cream stuff, you know. Anyways, look at Jeremiah 49, 7. Concerning Edom, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Is there no longer wisdom in Tedom? Teman, has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom decayed? Turn and flee, hide in deep caves, you who live in Eden. For I will bring on a disaster on Esau at that time when I punish him. If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? If thieves came during the night, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? Sound familiar? Yes. Sounds like Obadiah. But I will strip Esau bare. I will uncover his hiding places so that he cannot conceal himself. His armed men are destroyed. Also his allies and neighbors so there's no one to say, leave your, ch your fatherless children. I will keep them alive. Your widows too can depend on me. This is what the Lord says. If those who do not, do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, why should you go unpunished? You will not go unpunished but must drink it. I swear by myself, declares Lord, no one greater, that Basra will become a ruin and a curse and an object of horror and reproach and all its towns will be ruins forever. I have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, assemble yourselves to attack it, rise up for battle, just like Obadiah does. Same sounds, just like it's echoing it. Now, I will make you small among the nations, echoing Obadiah. Despise my mankind. The terror you inspire and the pride of your heart have deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, who occupy the heights of the hill, though you build your nest as high as the eagles, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom will become an object of horror. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. As Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown along with their neighboring town, says the Lord, so no one will live there in Edom. No people will dwell in it. Like a lion coming up from Jordan's thickets to a rich pasture land, I will chase Edom from its land in an instant. Who is the chosen one I will appoint for this? Who is like me and who can challenge me? And what shepherd can stand against me? Therefore, hear what the Lord has planned against Edom what he has purposed against those who live in Teman. The young of the flock will be dragged away. Their pasture will be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall, the earth will tremble, and their cry will resound to the Red Sea. Look, an eagle will soar and swoop down, spreading its wings over Basra. And that day, the hearts of Edom's warriors will be like the heart of a woman in labor. You can't understand. You really, I'm trying to get this across to you. This was absolutely terrifying what God was saying against Edom, because as we pointed out, in the historical context in which we're finding this, Edom had the wisest men of the ancient world, and they were considered to be, their defensive position was impregnable. It was impossible to defeat them with an attack, with a military attack, because how are you gonna support your army logistically? Where are you gonna get the water? They're up in the clefts of the rocks. They build their cities in these mountain, these hills, and these, as we pointed out, just look at some of the, the terrain. This is the view from the Southern Rift Valley looking across the valley of the mountains of Edom. Look at that terrain. And look at this, there's another shot to, to just blows your mind here. Let me put it up here on the board here. Here's some more, more perilous terrain for an attacking army. This would have been absolutely intimidating, as I've said in the past. And so therefore, and here's some more, a shot of the hills. This, was, this place was considered impregnable. There were a lot of places in the ancient world that were considered impregnable. Uh, Nineveh was thought to, be, thought to be impregnable. But there's a God on the throne and when he has had enough of these so-called impregnable cities and nations, the judgment comes and nobody can stop it. Nobody can stop the judgment no matter how impregnable. Men, mankind can be stopped, but not God. And God was able to give wisdom to Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian hordes to deal, with the, to deal militarily with the Edomites. And it had, a lot of it had to do with uh, the, the killing, uh, decapitating the government, as we pointed out, and Obadiah. Uh, the, 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 the military and political advisors were killed off, and then the soldiers were left without any leadership. 
And I've told you in the past, that's what uh, there's been talk out there, and you see it in the media, of trying to decapitate, the, the, you know, the, the foreign powers trying to decapitate our U.S. government. And it's going, in fact, there's a, I mentioned this before, which is actually crazy, that there's, they have this, there's several people in, in, uh, in uh, Trump's government that had this thing uh, where, like microwaves, and they were like, they lost all disoriented and everything and messed them up uh, for months, and some of them still have problems. I mean, they, they, who knows what's going on out there? You know, you heard of the Trojan horse there, that whole thing. You know, don't, the application is never, ever think for one minute the United States is impregnable. You know, we have the, this most formidable army that the world has ever seen. We're the greatest nation in the history of the world, greater than the time of the Antonine Caesars. We, 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 we don't go hungry in this country. If we go hungry, hungry in this country, it's because of people being uh, exploited and, you know, like, we, we, there's no, because you have food stamps, you've got all kinds of organizations in our country set up to so that people don't starve and are not homeless. But well, there's nobody like us. We got uh, processed food. You know, when the, when the Cold War came, everybody, you know, we, we got all these canned foods were great. But they put, you know, of course, we find out they're not really good for you in the long run because you get high cholesterol and you get all kinds of stuff going on. You got to go organic because, but, but when during the Cold War, when we thought the Russians were going to attack us in nuclear war, that was a good idea, but it's still a good idea. You might need the canned foods later on. So this stuff is, so we, we you know, we are unbelievable, the military we have. I, I told you, I'm sitting out here in my, in my office, and my office is shaking. It's like, are the Chinese attacking? It's like, really? They really they're gonna do that? No, they no, we're we're setting off stuff over here in the arsenal. It's like, cool. You know, it's like we got the you know, I'd like to go sit go out there and and watch this thing. Give me my earplugs though first. And like, you know, you know, uh, so but this is the thing. As powerful as we are, we should never trust in our military alone. We must trust in the God because our military is successful because of the God who sits on the throne. Yes, we train. We have the greatest trained army and the greatest, bravest soldiers. But it's only the Lord's got to be with us. So we not with the the, the the issue here that Obadiah is trying to teach us. The Holy Spirit's trying to teach us with Obadiah is never get complacent. Never think that we're impregnable. Don't be arrogant and proud. We can't be arrogant and proud as a nation. So as a Christian, we know about humility. The, 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 we know about the danger of arrogance. Pride comes before a fall. So what we need to do is pray for our leaders, as I said before, because our leaders can be arrogant and proud, and that's the downfall of our nation. And just when the talk, we have no leadership and it's arrogant and proud, that's gonna be the bad disaster for the, this nation. So we, look at, look, hold your place, look at First Timothy chapter two, bears repeating. Look at First Timothy chapter two. So I try to take an application of what's going, what we need to do. What we need to do as Christians to help our nation Okay, because this is the warning to all the nations, including our own, this book. You know, God, this is what pride did to Edom, and God destroyed it. And they thought they were impregnable, and they were rich, and they had the wisest people. Sound familiar? It sounds like the United States. We got, everybody wants to come here to go to school. Everybody goes, everybody comes over from the Middle East or Pakistan or India. They want to get jobs here, and they can go to school here. We're just, we're, we're just we tremendous wisdom in the country and intelligentsia and the, the weapon systems we have. Our military is our most best equipped. We're, we're the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. China and Russia, they, they're nothing compared to us. They're people waiting in line for food. Do you see anybody waiting in line for food in America? So this is something we, we need to understand. So we'll look at it as an impregnable force in the world and have been for a while, okay? We need to help our country. Because what's happening to our country is what happened to every nation in the past. Our country is falling apart. Okay, as you can see, you all know it. I'm preaching to the choir, right? We all know this is going on. But we got to do something about it as the church. We can still do something about it. We can still live the spiritual life. We can pray for our leaders. And don't under, pray, prayer is not a last resort. It's the first resort. So you, you want to be a prayer warrior. We're soldiers of Christ Jesus, okay? So how can we help our country? And how can we help, how can we help any, every nation on the face of the earth? How can we help our, uh, the non-Christian friends? Well, you got to pray. A prayer warrior. A prayer warrior. I told you the story that was, the colonel had so, uh, with his ministry a tremendous effect on, that, on, 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 this, on this country and around the world. It was a woman he sold. He said, I know, it was during the Ephesians series. I don't know if anybody else heard it because I remember this stuck out in my mind. He said there was this woman that wrote him a letter. He used to write to him. And she, would, she, she was an invalid. She couldn't get out of bed. She was this for 30 years. I forget what she had. 
And she told him in the letter, I pray for you and your ministry every day. And he just said, that's an invisible hero, and that's the kind of person that's going to be decorated in rewards in the famous seat. And did she, did she, uh, did she uh, you know, kill a giant with a, with a slingshot? And a couple of, in a rock, but did she, you know, did she uh, just, you know, speak the wisdom of like Solomon? Did she, did she walk with Jesus as an apostle? No, she didn't do any of that stuff. She couldn't do anywhere. But what did she do? With her prayers, God moves through the prayers of his saints and changed history. Prayer starts off prayer, and we apply the word of God in, in our lives, and we can make an impact to help our nation so that we can influence the nation. We, pray, we need to pray for our leaders that they get exposed to people who have sound principles and, and, and are humble and they're, they're individuals that have establishment principles. I mean, they have, they, they have respect for the Ten Commandments. That's ten, establishment principles. So look at it says in 1 Timothy 2.1. I urge then that, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings, that would be presidents, anybody in, in executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local government, pray for them. For kings and all those in authority, that's to keep them humble, to keep them uh, with, have character and integrity, be honest, okay? Do what's good for the people, not what's good for themselves or their party. Be good for what's good for the whole country, both Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or Independent, not just for your own party, what's good for the whole party. And of course, if it's against God's will, we can't vote for that. We don't want that. And raise up people who have moral courage that will do the right thing, and not just for the people, the people pleasers to get a vote and maybe go against the tide. Because the world's going a certain way, the country's going a certain way, we need to raise it. We have to be dissenters, godly dissenters, and pray for people that God would raise up people that would be able to influence policymaking in our country. Don't underestimate your prayers. So we're to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. Here's one reason why you should pray for your leaders that you don't like, okay? This is good and pleases our God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. That's why you should do this as well. A second reason, because he wants all people to be saved, including the president and his cabinet. And to a knowledge of the truth, he wants to see that happen. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Now go back to Obadiah, verse 14, please. So, this is a terrifying book, Obadiah, because it shows how God brought a great nation down with tremendous intelligence in its nation, tremendous wealth, impregnable military position, geographical location. They were considered untouchable and would be around for a long time. But did, has anybody ever seen an Edomite lately? I haven't. I haven't seen him on CNN yet, or uh, not that I watch it, but uh, uh, or Fox TV or anywhere else. No. A warning to not just America, but to Russia and to China and Britain and every, la every nation on the face of this earth. God is a God who judges the nations. So, therefore, in Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, is describing the day of the Lord in relation to the southern kingdom of Judah. The day of the Lord, as we noted in the first session, specifically, specifically refers to the period in which the Lord judged the kingdom of Judah for their idolatry and rebellion, which took place in the 6th century B.C. Now, the God of Israel, as we pointed out, employed Nebuchadnezzar's evil empire to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah as well as the other Gentile nations in the Mediterranean region of the world. He was God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar was, as we saw in Jeremiah 27. Now these indictments presented by the God of Israel through the prophet Obadiah in verse 14 are the reason for the God of Israel declaring judgment against the people of Edom in Obadiah verses 7 through 10. So, therefore, a comparison of Obadiah 7 through 10 with Obadiah 10 through 14, reveals that God would judge Edom by causing her people to be slaughtered by her enemies because they slaughtered the citizens of Judah who were fleeing the Babylonians uh, during that invasion. So this is an example, and I mentioned this in brief uh, in the first session, this is an example of what we call in theology lex teleonis, which means that the judgments Edom eventually suffered fit the crimes they committed against Judah. This is God telling us how he rules the nations. 
He is not sitting on the throne with a can of beer, and I don't mean to be, but some people think that God is like Santa Claus, and he's waiting for the Christmas to come. He's not, he's actively engaged in the affairs of mankind and angels. That's called the imminency of God. The fact that God's saying this here, he's telling you, I'm around. I'm the, I'm not, don't, don't believe the deist. Yeah, the deist said God created and walked away from his creation. No, God is involved in the affairs of mankind. How do we know that? We know it firsthand. Look, as he, how is he involved in your life and my life? Is the word of God being preached by the power of the Spirit? Yes. He's intervening in our lives right now as we speak. As you pick up your Bible in fellowship with God, God's intervening in your life. That's called the imminency of God. God is transcendent. And as I said this before, think of the time, matter, space continuum, which is like a box. And God's outside the box, and he can be in the box. He is in the box. So you have to have a proper view of God. Don't be like the deist that thinks he steps away from creation, doesn't have anything to do with mankind. And he thinks all the destructions and the war are an evidence that God doesn't exist. No, it's an evidence that God does exist, that there is war, because he uses war to judge evil nations. And people want to talk about, they're going to abolish war. Good luck. Because you're basically saying, God, don't judge anybody. As if all these nations that go to war are super, super nice and sweet and innocent. No, you're not going to abolish war. You're not going to do that. Okay? Not going to happen. Because this is a time of the devil's world. He's ruling. This course is going to have to be war. This, is, this world's enslaved to sin and Satan and his cosmic system. Of course there's going to be war. God's not going to sit there idly by and let things just fall up, go wherever it wants to go. No, he's going to hold people to account including the devil and his angels. So this, this book, Obadiah, is giving us, and, and we saw the prophecy in Jeremiah, which echoes Obadiah. It's an example of lex talionis, which means, in this context of Obadiah, that the judgments Edom eventually suffered fit the crimes they committed against Judah. Their punishment, in other words, corresponded to the crimes they committed against the people of Judah. In other words... Edom's punishment fit their crimes they committed against the Jews. Now I may interject something and make it a little application in our day and age. People who commit murder and, conv and convicted of murder through a jury of their peers, why are they sitting in a prison and billions and trillions of dollars are being spent on these people to keep them alive? Where's the justice in that? Where's Lex Talionis being practiced there? Our government, the leaders, federal, state, local governments are supposed to be bearing the sword. They should be practicing capital punishment. That's why civil governments were created in the first place. And nobody wants to talk about it. The politicians, Democrat, Republican, of course, the Democrats are not. Now the Republicans sound like the Democrats. They don't want to talk about it either. But what about the justice for families who lost a loved one to murder? Well, we have to have a mass murder, okay, to have, like, the I told you, the Massachusetts, where they don't want the death penalty, like a lot of states, but when the, the Arathon bomber killed all those people, all of a sudden, even in the Boston Globe, they, of all places, they would call for the, you know, capital punishment. Are you kidding me? So, let me get that straight. So, that family, the families of those who lost loved ones, okay, and that Marathon bomber attack, they get justice, but the person who wasn't a part of a mass murder doesn't get any justice. You know what that's called? Blood is on the land, people. This is another reason why God will judge our nation. His murder is not being, there's not uh, judgment, uh, the, the crimes are not being, that, that are being committed in this nation, and they're found guilty. We're not punishing them uh, corresponding to their crimes. God said in Genesis 9, you take away somebody's life, cold-blooded murder, you die. Well, we don't do that. This is another thing we should, be, we should be praying for our nation. This is what's another thing we got blood on the land. God is angry with this when the nation does this. He's trying to use civil government to govern the problems of the sin nature and the devil and the devil's world and people murdering, and the government's negligent in their responsibility. That's my big problem with that. That's why they were, Genesis 9 says that's why civil government was started in the first place. Genesis 9, as soon as he get out of the ark. But we're not doing that. So it's all tied together. God, if, you can't, if you're not going to exercise judgment of your criminals and, and put to death, listen to me, capital crimes, murder, rape, kidnapping, 
That's Old Testament. We know what God says a capital crime is in the law. Murder, rape, kidnapping. But we don't do that. Many states in the Union are pretty, it's almost, it's almost extinct now. And that is not a good thing. Because then God says, oh, you're not going to do it? You're not going to practice this, which I ordain for this government to do? I will destroy you with an evil empire that will practice it. We're looking at, we're looked at as absolutely crazy people in other parts of the world. We wonder why we can't leave our, uh, we can't let our daughters walk down the street and, and at night with their boyfriend or in a major city and not get raped or, or attacked or murdered. Or why our grandmother is getting bumped out and getting shot for a couple of bucks by some guy. Or people running into a store to steal clothes out of a store and the police won't even bother in California because not more than $1,000. I don't feel bad for the police. It's not the police I'm upset with. I'm upset with the why, are we, why don't we start doing something about this? But we're not. And so now we have a disastrous situation on our hand. All because we have rejected God's law. He says to the civil governments, you are to execute the criminals. Punishment must fit the crime. Don't throw him in a jail. He's not going to get rehabilitated. He's just going to get raped. He's just going to get into a gang. He's just going to get drugs. This is what's going on. And yet God's not look, God's watching this whole thing. And so eventually he's just gonna bring another nation to take care of us, to do what we we wouldn't do. So God said, I'll bring a foreign power and, and destroy you. I say all this because this was the kind of stuff that was going on in Old Testament Israel, where they were not practicing justice and righteousness. And he don't he disciplined his own people. His covenant people, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. They both did stuff like this that we're doing today. So these prophetic declarations recorded in Obadiah 7 through 10, like all of the prophecies recorded in Obadiah 2 through 16, were fulfilled in history since Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was able to capture the city of Petra and take the citizens of Edom into captivity as they did the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. Arabian tribes, history tells us, like through Herodotus, the great historian, the Arabian tribes moved into Edom during the 6th century BC, which forced the remnant of Edomites to migrate west. And they became the province of Persian Empire that followed Babylon. And they were no longer a national entity under Medo-Persia. And they were ultimately reduced by John Hyrcanus of the Maccabean dynasty and lost their natural, national existence under the Romans. And nowhere to be found. They were cut off forever as a nation, though the land would again be repopulated. So the, the, the indictments that are listed in Obadiah 10 through 14 are therefore the basis for the prophetic declarations in Obadiah 7 through 10. So the list of indictments or crimes committed by the Edomite people against the people of Judah during the Babylonian invasions, which are presented in Obadiah 10 through 14, serve as the basis for the prophetic declarations recorded in Obadiah 7 through 10. In other words, verses 10 through 14 present the reason why God declares that he will judge the nation of Edom in verses 7 through 10. So the prophetic declarations recorded in verses 7 through 10 and the indictments presented in verses 10 through 14 are expressing God's wrath. What's God's wrath? His righteous indignation. He's righteous in being angry with unrepentant sinful behavior. He's right to be angry because our country doesn't practice capital punishment and not therefore practicing justice and righteousness. He's righteous indignation and it doesn't go out. It's a part of his holy character, his justice and righteousness. We should be, the nations of the earth should be terrified of what's awaiting them, including our own. But we, and every, every Christian in all these nations, including our own, we can do something about it, as I said before. It's, we can pray. We can do something about living the spiritual life in our own lives, and maybe it'll have a it'll have a trickle effect throughout the culture. You can you can do something in your own personal life. You can read somebody. I can't. We all can practice the command to love one another with each other and grow to spiritual maturity and be a blessing to our neighborhoods, be a blessing to our country, as they said before, and also be a blessing in, internationally. This ministry is a blessing internationally to people in Pakistan, India, India and around the world. And unbelievable, and you're a part of it. That would not happen if it wasn't for people like you who were hungry for the word of God. That's exactly right. So we're trying to do our part. 
in our own, in our own communities, okay? We can do something to help our country and pray that God raise up again people who are establishment principles with, and pray for our executive, judicial, legislative uh, branches of our government. You know, play, play, pray for our, our education system in this country. This is where, the, this is where it all starts in the education. And, and, and go back further, it all starts in the home. It all starts in the home. We're parents, we, we have broken homes. We have, we, no wonder we're falling apart. Because that's what happened to Rome. They fell apart from within and divorce became rampant like it is in our country. And don't think that divorce doesn't have bad effects on kids. It does. It has bad effects on a lot of things, including the people who are divorced. And so you have this tremendous things that onslaught go in the wrong direction. But don't look at the circumstances like that. Look at God. Keep looking at God. When you pray, you're saying, God, I can't help my, I can't do anything. I can't change the president to make a good decision here. Like, you know, they're shooting down balloons. I don't know who's, who's the balloons. Are going. I don't know what's going on. Okay, help. Lord, I'm, I'm just a poor sinner saved by the grace of God. Can you please help us? Our country needs help. We, just like a little child. Because that's what I do a lot of times. Like, this, this country is just, the world is just too complicated. And I, you know what? I, can you help? Can you please help. You know, turn to him. Because he can do the impossible. Okay? He can do the impossible. But you takes faith. You know, have faith the size of a mustard seed. You don't know what could God could do if we just had some faith. There have been many times that in, 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 in the nations were going in the wrong direction, but a, a small group of remnant of believers, of pivotal believers, who the world doesn't even know, but God knows, turned it around. Look at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, they were a bunch of pagan. I mean, they were, they had Roman leaders were having male sexual relations with young boys. That was in the Roman Empire, in, in the government. And you had temple prostitutes and male and female. I mean, you think the culture in America is bad today? What if you lived in the days of Paul? And what did they do? The apostles... Okay, who are considered the offscarring of the earth, they changed the world. The world's never been the same since. And we were no different than them. Peter, James, and John, they were no different than us, Paul. They just were saved by the grace just like you and I. You look at them as like, oh, they, like the Roman Catholics, like they have a, a halo around the head and they're super-duper saints. No, they screwed up all the time. They were saved by the grace of God. God can use them. He, you can, he can use us. So if the apostles could turn the world upside down in the Roman Empire, which is really more, much more morally decadent than the United States is in the 21st century, though we're getting there, he could use us. I believe in my God. I believe my God's powerful enough to do that. I believe it. I'm going to pray. If you don't believe it, you won't pray. Okay? But pray. Because he could do mighty things. So Obadiah verses 7 through 14, also teaches that the God of Israel exercises his prerogative as judge of all mankind. The world doesn't want to hear about that. Okay, reject it, but you know what? At your own peril. Because guess what? God's going to judge. That's what he does. He is his prerogative, his creator and ruler. He, he's the one who created us, and he has the right to judge us. Oh, I don't think that's fair. <laughs> as God used to say to Israel, no, 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 no. You're wrong. I'm right. What you think is right is wrong, and what I think is wrong is... Look, you guys are so screwed up. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm God, and I'm going to demonstrate it by judging you and your nation, the wicked people. And that's what he did to them. He's the judge of all mankind. And then lastly, Obadiah, verses 7 through 14, actually you can say the whole first 14 verses, reveals that God intervenes in the affairs of men. And here he is intervening on behalf of the kingdom of Judah. Remember, he, he's giving justice to the kingdom of Judah, especially that believing remnant led by Daniel and Jeremiah, right? And Obadiah. These verses reveal that God intervenes in the affairs of men, and here he is intervening on behalf of the kingdom of Judah and against the Edomite people, which is called the eminency of God. God is involved in the affairs of mankind, and God will get involved in the affairs of us, our, our nation, if we pray and live the spiritual life. 
practice the word of God in our lives. Practice the command to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do your jobs wherever you go as under the Lord, 100% effort. Live your, do your men, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, obey your husbands in all things as under the Lord. Children, obey your parents in all things as under the Lord. Do everything under the Lord. We can make a difference. The early church did in the great Roman Empire, that decadent moral empire. It turned that, that nation, it, it, it turned, it became, but it was outlawed Christianity, and then it became the state religion, which was a, actually turned out to be a bad thing. But we, if they could, God could use those people. Many of them were slaves and illiterate. He could use us. God doesn't need, you know. Remember the story with Gideon. He doesn't need thirty thousand. He doesn't. He doesn't need millions and millions, okay, to win a war. The battle is the Lord. All you need is one person with some faith, like David, who struck Gideon, uh, Goliath down, okay, with one shot. And he had five rocks. That was one for each of his family. Do you know that? So he, it, it, all he had faith while well, great King Saul was sitting there doing nothing. He didn't have faith, okay? So have some faith. God can move the mountains with, with faith. And here's, we got a big mountain in our, in our lives. We're, just, we're in a bad situation with our nation. Well, that's a big mountain, right? That looks like an immovable object with the problems we have in our country. Not with our God. With our God, all things are possible. Is it not true? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your great, uh, our great Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, who we love. And just pray, Father, that you would help us and guide us in the application of these things so that we can bring glory and honor to you and your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to sing us a song, which I guess that, uh, what's that uh, holiday? Uh, oh, um, Valentine's Day is coming up. Right. I wrote this song a long time ago. I'll give you a little, little background. I was feeling a little bit bad about myself because I was not married and I was getting grief from my mother for not being married. And she blamed me. She blamed me because she, she knows me. You Probably because of you. So then I was just feeling bad for myself and I said, you know what? I'm going to write this song. And this is also for all the people who are single and divorced or single and want to get married and not. This is basically uh, for you, you know? It goes like this. It's springtime, the season for love and romance. Men and women. Come together to join in the dance Holding hands and giving kisses And sharing their vows of love Toward each other But I wonder if there's love for me But I look in the world And read of God's own love for me Son to suffer and die for me, his enemy. That's real love, and I know that there's love for me. It's plain to see at the cross. All around me, lonely people are so. enemy that's real love and 
I know that there's love for them It's plain to see at the cross If you're lonely, feel forsaken and filled with despair Listen to me when I tell you there's one who does care The God of heaven, oh, created you and this world Has sent his one and only son to show you what love is about So look in the word and read of God's own love for you love for you. It's plain to see at the cross. There is love for those who haven't a friend. Oh, there is love for those whose heart has been broke. Oh, there is love for those who